Let me tell you a story, podcast number 76. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. The age of Never mind it is a how long it was. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Last week we were hot in Boise. This week we're cool with lots of rain. But the sunshine returned today, which makes everyone happy. And I hope podcast number 76 makes you happy. It's another variety pack. Steve will start us out with a Treasure Island excerpt, and I'll follow with Winds of Wyoming. And then we'll feature Hillary Johnson's Shape-Shifting Bahoya and Jeannie Kay's Prison Librarian. In Treasure Island, I'm going to read the last part of Chapter 26, and then go right into 27. I was drinking in his words and smiling away, as conceited as a cock upon a wall, when, all in a breath, back went his right hand over his shoulder. Something sang like an arrow through the air. I felt a blow and then a sharp pang, and there I was pinned by the shoulder to the mast. In the horrid pain and surprise of the moment, I scarce can say it was by my own volition, and I am sure it was without a conscious aim. Both my pistols went off and both escaped out of my hands. They did not fall alone. With a choked cry, the coxswain loosed his grasp upon the shrouds and plunged headfirst into the water. Pieces of Eight Owing to the cant of the vessel, the masts hung far out over the water, and from my perch on the cross-trees I had nothing below me but the surface of the bay. Hans, who was not so far up, was, in consequence, nearer to the ship and fell between me and the bulwarks. He rose once to the surface in a lather of foam and blood, and then sank again for good. As the water settled, I could see him lying huddled together on the clean, bright sand in the shadow of the vessel's sides. A fish or two whipped past his body. Sometimes, by the quivering of the water, he appeared to move a little, as if he were trying to rise. But he was dead enough for all that, being both shot and drowned and was food for fish in the very place where he had designed my slaughter. I was no sooner certain of this than I began to feel sick, faint, and terrified. The hot blood was running over my back and chest. The dirk, where I had pinned my shoulder to the mast, seemed to burn like a hot iron. Yet it was not so much these real sufferings that distressed me. For these, it seemed to me, I could bear without a murmur. It was the horror I had upon my mind of falling from the cross trees into that still green water beside the body of the coxswain. I clung with both hands till my nails ached, and I shut my eyes as if to cover up the peril. Gradually my mind came back again. My pulses quieted down to a more natural time, and I was once more in possession of myself. It was my first thought to pluck forth the dirk, but either it stuck too hard or my nerve failed me and I desisted with a violent shudder. Oddly enough, that very shudder did the business. The knife, in fact, 
had come the nearest in the world to missing me altogether. It held me by a mere pinch of skin, and this the shudder tore away. The blood ran down the faster, to be sure, but I was my own master again, and only tacked to the mast by my coat and shirt. These last I broke through with a sudden jerk, and then regained the deck by the starboard shrouds, for nothing in the world would I have again ventured, shaken as I was, upon the overhanging port shrouds from which Israel had so lately fallen. I went below and did what I could for my wound. It pained me a good deal, and still bled freely, but it was neither deep nor dangerous, nor did it greatly gall me when I used my arm. Then I looked around me, and as the ship was now, in a sense, my own, I began to think of clearing it from its last passenger, the dead man, O'Brien. He had pitched, as I have said, against the bulwarks where he lay like some horrible, ungainly sort of puppet, life-size indeed, but how different from life's color or life's comeliness. In that position, I could easily have my way with him, and as the habit of tragical adventures had worn off almost all my terror for the dead, I took him by the waist as if he had been a sack of bran, and with one good heave, tumbled him overboard. He went in with a sounding plunge. The red cap came off and remained floating on the surface, and as soon as the splash subsided, I could see him and Israel lying side by side, both wavering with the tremulous movement of the water. O'Brien, though, still quite a young man, was very bald. There he lay, with that bald head across the knees of the man who had killed him, and the quick fishes steering to and fro over both. I was now alone upon the ship. The tide had just turned. The sun was within so few degrees of setting that already the shadow of the pines upon the western shore began to reach right across the anchorage and fall in patterns on the deck. The evening breeze had sprung up, and though it was well warded off by the hill with the two peaks upon the east, the cordage had begun to sing a little softly to itself and the idle sails to rattle to and fro. I began to see a danger to the ship. The jibs I speedily doused and brought tumbling to the deck. But the mainsail was a harder matter. Of course, when the schooner cantered over, the boom had swung outboard, and the cap of it and a foot or two of sail hung even underwater. I thought this made it still more dangerous, yet the strain was so heavy that I half feared to meddle. At last I got my knife and cut the halyards. The peak dropped instantly. A great belly of loose canvas floated broad upon the water. And since, pull as I liked, I could not budge the downhaul. That was the extent of what I could accomplish. For the rest, the Hispaniola must trust to luck, like myself. By this time, the whole anchorage had fallen into shadow. The last rays, I remember, falling through a glade of the wood and shining bright as jewels on the flowery mantle of the wreck. It began to be chill. The tide was rapidly fleeting seaward the schooner settling more and more upon her beam ends. I scrambled forward and looked over. It seemed shallow enough, and holding the cut hawser in both hands for a last security, I let myself drop softly overboard. The water scarcely reached my waist. The sand was firm and covered with ripple marks, and I waded ashore in great spirits, leaving the Hispaniola on her side, with her mainsail trailing wide upon the surface of the bay. About the same time, the sun went fairly down, and the breeze whistled low in the dusk among the tossing pines. At least, and at last, 
I was off the sea, nor had I returned thence empty-handed. There lay the schooner, clear at last from buccaneers and ready for our own men to board and get to sea again. I had nothing nearer my fancy than to get home to the stockade and boast of my achievements. Possibly I might be blamed a bit for my truantry, but the recapture of the Hispaniola was a clenching answer, and I hoped that even Captain Smollett would confess I had not lost my time. So thinking, and in famous spirits, I began to set my face homeward for the blockhouse and my companions. I remembered that the most easterly of the rivers which drain into Captain Kidd's anchorage ran from the two-peaked hill upon my left, and I bent my course in that direction that I might pass the stream while it was small. The wood was pretty open, and keeping along the lower spurs, I had soon turned the corner of that hill, and not long after waded to the mid-calf across the watercourse. This brought me near to where I had encountered Ben Gunn, the maroon, and I walked more circumspectly, keeping an eye on every side. The dusk had come nigh hand completely, and as I opened out the cleft between the two peaks, I became aware of a wavering glow against the sky, where, as I judged, the man of the island was cooking his supper before a roaring fire. And yet, I wondered, in my heart, that he should show himself so careless. For if I could see this radiance, might it not reach the eyes of Silver himself where he camped upon the shore among the marshes? Gradually, the night fell blacker. It was all I could do to guide myself even roughly towards my destination. The double hill behind me and the spyglass on my right hand loomed faint and fainter. The stars were few and pale, and in the low ground where I wandered I kept tripping among bushes and rolling into sandy pits. Suddenly a kind of brightness fell about me. I looked up. A pale glimmer of moonbeams had alighted on the summit of the spyglass, and soon after I saw something broad and silvery moving low down behind the trees, and knew the moon had risen. With this to help me, I passed rapidly over what remained to me of my journey, and sometimes walking, sometimes running, impatiently drew near to the stockade. Yet as I began to tread the grove that lies before, I was not so thoughtless that I slacked my pace and went a trifle warily. It would have been a poor end of my adventures to get shot down by my own party in mistake. The moon was climbing higher and higher. Its light began to fall here and there in masses through the more open districts of the wood. And right in front of me, a glow of a different color appeared among the trees. It was red and hot, and now and again it was a little darkened, as if it were the embers of a bonfire smoldering. For the life of me, I could not think what it might be. At last I came right down upon the borders of the clearing. The western end was already steeped in moonshine. The rest, and the blockhouse itself, still lay in a black shadow, checkered with long, silvery streaks of light. On the other side of the house, an immense fire had burned itself into clear embers and shed a steady, red reverberation, contrasted strongly with the mellow paleness of the moon. There was not a soul stirring, not a sound beside the noises of the breeze. I stopped, with much wonder in my heart, and perhaps a little terror also, it had not been our way to build great fires. We were indeed, by the captain's orders, somewhat niggardly of firewords, and I began to fear that something had gone wrong while I was absent. I stole round by the eastern end, keeping close in shadow, and at a convenient place where the darkness was thickest, crossed the palisade. To make assurance surer, 
I got upon my hands and knees and crawled without a sound towards the corner of the house. As I drew nearer, my heart was suddenly and greatly lightened. It is not a pleasant noise in itself, and I have often complained of it at other times. But just then it was like music to hear my friends snoring together so loud and peaceful in their sleep. The sea cry of the watch, that beautiful all's well, never fell more reassuringly on my ear. In the meantime, there was no doubt of one thing. They kept an infamous bad watch. If it had been Silver and his lads that were now creeping in on them, not a soul would have seen daybreak. That was what it was, thought I, to have the captain wounded. And again I blame myself sharply for leaving them in their danger with so few to mount guard. By this time I had got to the door and stood up. All was dark within, so that I could distinguish nothing by the eye. As for sounds, there was the steady drone of the snorers, and a small occasional noise of flickering or pecking that I could in no way account for. With my arms before me, I walked steadily in. I should lie down in my own place, I thought with a silent chuckle, and enjoy their faces when they found me in the morning. My foot struck something yielding. It was a sleeper's leg, and he turned and groaned, but without awakening. And then, all of a sudden, a shrill voice broke forth out of the darkness. Pieces of eight! 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 and so forth without pause or change like the clacking of a tiny mill. Silver's green parrot, Captain Flint. It was she whom I had heard pecking at a piece of bark. It was she, keeping better watch than any human being, who thus announced my arrival with her wearisome refrain. I had no time left to recover. At the sharp, clipping tone of the parrot, the sleepers awoke and sprang up, and with a mighty oath, the voice of Silver cried, Who goes? I turned to run, struck violently against one person, recoiled and ran full into the arms of a second, who, for his part, closed upon and held me tight. "'Bring a torch, Dick,' said Silver, when my capture was thus assured. And one of the men left the log house and presently returned with a lighted brand." Winds of Wyoming, Chapter 23 Mike and Clint met on the road below the bison pasture. Mike leaned out his window. The branding is done, thank God. It's been hanging over my head all spring. Clint flicked a grasshopper off the outside mirror of his truck. Just be glad we don't have to brand the buffalo. We'll wish we branded them if we find another hole in the fence today and no bison. He couldn't erase the vision of his entire herd wandering through the forest. They'd be impossible to round up. Clint eyeballed the fence. Fence looks good from here, but you never know. When to drive together or separate? Let's go opposite directions and meet at the top of the hill, Mike said. If either of us sees a problem, we'll radio. We should be finished in time for lunch. He guided his truck close to the fence line. The sunshine felt good on his shoulder. He still hadn't fixed the window, but today that was okay. He settled in the seat, his right hand reaching for Tramp. Before his fingers hit the vinyl, he remembered his dog, and Kate. He sighed. They'd both been away from the ranch too long. The good news was that Tramp was on the mend. 
Dr. Hall had told him yesterday he might be able to reclaim his dog next week. But he'd warned him it would be weeks, maybe months, before the collie roamed the ranch again. To be honest, the vet had said, he'll never be as active or agile as he was before the attack. Mike stopped the truck and slid across the seat to the passenger door. He stepped out to jiggle a fence post that looked loose, but it felt solid. He removed his hat to let the breeze cool his head. The grass was tall and green this year, the cattle and bison thriving. His dad would have been pleased. The drought years had weighed heavy on his shoulders. Mike ran his fingers through his hair before returning his hat to his head. But no matter how bad things got, his dad never lost his sense of humor. Just the thought of his father's wide grin and contagious laugh made him smile. He climbed back into the truck. If he didn't get a move on, Clint would be coming down the hill looking for him. Without his dad's guidance, it was good to have Clint for a foreman. Not only was he smart and dependable, he was a good friend, his best friend. A flock of birds circled above the cemetery, jabbering like a schoolyard full of first graders. Kate watched them, thinking her Aunt Mary would have said they were raising a ruckus. She should call her great aunt, but could she tell her she was no longer at the ranch without letting it slip she'd been arrested? Again? She eyed Dimple's Jeep parked next to the deputy's SUV. The keys hung on a hook just inside the front door. All she had to do was feel alongside the door frame for the key ring and lift the keys off the hook. Something she could do, even from a wheelchair, without the officers noticing. And then... And then it would be impossible to prove her innocence. Back to square one. The bird swooped up in a massive black cloud and whirled out of sight. Square one, make good decisions. Contrary to her ingrained instincts, she could not, would not run this time. Staying put when she had an opportunity to escape imprisonment was even harder than turning herself into the deputies. Square two, find a good lawyer, one who could prove somebody else stole the money. Her many appearances in court had taught her the importance of an able attorney, which meant she needed to make money to hire one, and that meant she needed to find a job. She struggled to sit up and maneuver into the wheelchair. Fatigue washed through her body, and she no longer cared about anything, the arrest, court, prison, or the internship. All she wanted was to crawl into bed, burrow down inside the covers and sleep for hours, maybe days, but she grasped the wheels and rolled them forward, feeling a knowing empathy for Dimple's constant pain. Her whole body ached. Maybe she'd have a pain pill and a nap after the deputies left. Back at the patio table, she studied an internet list of marketing internships in Colorado. Most were with Denver firms. She didn't want to live in a large city again, but... She sighed. Beggars can't be choosers. She switched to a different program and opened a resume template. On the other side of the patio door, oven hinges squeaked and cupboard doors slammed. The deputies were certainly thorough. They'd probably want to examine her wheelchair and inspect the cast on her leg. Before Kate finished typing her name, she realized the futility of sending out applications. She couldn't drive a car or leave Dimple's house, let alone the state, for interviews. She didn't know how long she'd be under arrest or when she'd go to trial or if she'd be sent to prison. If she was offered an internship, she wouldn't be able to tell an employer when she could start. 
Oh, well, she just have to pray the state assigned a good public defender to her case. She closed the resume and signed into her Facebook account. She'd write Amy a note instead. It would be nice to communicate with someone who understood what she was going through, someone who'd also contributed to the recidivism statistics. Six messages. That was a surprise. She'd had the account for two months, but only friended four people so far. Kate clicked the icon and grinned. The messages were all from Amy. Her friend's funny missives never failed to make her smile. The first one read, Kate, did you ride off into the sunset with the most gorgeous cowboy on earth? I haven't heard from you in ages. The second added, Okay, so maybe you got stampeded by a buffalo herd instead. P.S. I hope not. Kate laughed out loud. Then, What's the deal with the weird emails? Did you fall off the wagon? Kate frowned. What did that mean? She opened the next message. Kate, we've got to talk. Were you serious when you wrote that you were going to drain this dump of every cent they have and my bank account is bulging now? What's wrong with you? Call me ASAP. The final two notes made even less sense. Where are you, Catherine Joy Nielsen? I've tried your cell phone and the phone in your cabin. I leave messages, but you don't return my calls. And what did that last email mean? Diamonds are a girl's best friend. Are you engaged? Did you break into a jewelry store? I'm trying not to panic, but I'm really, really worried about you. If this is a joke, I'm not laughing. The last note read, Your aunt called last night. She's beginning to get concerned, too. I didn't mention the emails. I hate to meddle, but if we don't hear from you soon, I'll contact the ranch to find out what's going on. Your forever but frustrated friend, Amy. P.S. I've been sending emails to your work address. I hope that's okay with your boss. I'm just doing everything I can think of to get your attention. I'm praying you'll check Facebook soon. Next up is a short story by Hilary Johnson. It's called Shape-Shifting Bohoya, and Bohoya means protector in Korean. Bitterroot National Forest, Idaho, 1982. Jack had been his real name, not boy. He'd forgotten that until the new boy arrived, forgotten he hadn't always lived in a trailer, in the woods, with a man who heard him. Bring him back, boy! Marlin sounded angrier than usual. Jack switched the soft, chubby legs to his other hip and placed a dirty hand over the kid's mouth. Shh! Evaporating dew spiraled upward through thin, dancing leaves. Marlin stumbled past their hiding spot, curses dripping with his spittle. A territorial chipmunk called from a branch above Jack and the new boy. The kid was looking up at the leaves, too, his eyes solid marbles behind tiny slits. He hadn't cried since Jack first lifted him from the bed that was sometimes a table in their trailer. Before that, he'd cried from the moment Marlin brought him. Stole him. It'll be easier on you if you bring him back now, Marlin called. They looked at each other, Jack and the new boy. The kid laid his head down on Jack's shoulder. Jack's legs trembled beneath their combined weight. 
He squatted below the sunlight, still reaching its way through the leaves. A drop of sweat fell into his eyes. He rested the new boy on his knee and lifted a hand to wipe it when the boy spoke. I want Mama. Shh, Jack said again, with more warning. Marlon went somewhere almost every week to get food and a bottle that had his name on it. Why did Jack never think about how close they were to others? Or a town? It had been so long since he'd seen anything besides the critters who visited their rusty single-wide or the hairy giants, the ones Marlin made fun of him for describing. Why couldn't Jack remember the world beyond their woods? Leather snapped. The belt, that was why. The new boy whimpered. Jack turned the kid and scooted him closer to his chest. I won't let him hurt you. Snap! Marlin's threat flicked against itself a second time. There was never a threat without the blows. His welted back already stung in anticipation. The new boy's thin brows pulled together before he squeezed shut his lids, trying to obey. Jack understood his fear. I will protect you. The child nodded and answered with his eyes still closed. Bohoya. There you are. Marlin's puffy face blotched pink behind the patchy white beard. Liquored breath skidded through teeth that had more than one color of black. He's mine, boy. Marlin's faint upper lip curled. Heavy breaths lifted Marlin's naked chest up and down under shredded denim overalls. Jack fell back slightly but kept the child balanced one-handed. When his free hand jetted behind him for support, he reached dry earth. He scooped it and stood. Dirt and rocks flew from his fingers at the same time he kicked his leg outward toward Marlin's crotch. Jack ran a dozen steps with both hands around the boy before Marlin stopped cussing and followed. Heavy footfalls clambered over rocks and dry foliage behind them. Jack hadn't run in years, but his legs remembered how. Stronger legs were only one of the changes in his body lately. The child clutched Jack's shoulder-length hair and burrowed his face into Jack's sweaty neck. They were already farther than Jack had ever been allowed to explore. The trees here grew close together. He carried the boy like a shield and tried to weave through as pine branches smacked his face. The kid was silent even when Jack used him to push through the bigger limbs. An eye-like shape gaped in the rock ahead. Jack turned to the hole. Their only option was to run fast and hide in a cave. He was bigger than when he'd first been brought here but he wouldn't have a chance if Marlin reached them. Marlin was really strong. The summer heat disappeared with the light, and Jack clutched the kid tight. Maybe he shouldn't have stopped running. They'd be trapped now. Tiny scratching noises sounded to his left, and Jack fumbled to step away from the sound. His forehead smacked stone, and a warm trickle brushed his eye just below the throbbing pain. He swiped at the blood and balanced his hand against the jagged rocks, following the wall away from the opening and away from the scratching. There came a creak of moving earth, followed by sound like cracking wood. The kid sneezed and showered Jack's cheek with spit. Now both sides of his face were wet. That old mine will come down on you both, boy! Marlin's last few words were garbled with mucus, and he coughed to clear them. After hacking and spitting, he said, Come back and we can share him! Jack let go of the wall and pressed the child's head back down to his shoulder. 
He shook his head no, but couldn't find any voice inside his mouth. Marlin's frustrated yell echoed into the dank hole. Jack stumbled and groped for a handhold. The tunnel ended. He was as deep as it would go. He dug at it anyway. Rock crumbled beneath his fingers and purple light pulsed in jagged strips. He could see the far wall during the brief illumination and where his hand had trailed fingers of blood. They were in a small cavern, only one way in or out. Jack set the kid down and the new boy complained. Just for a second. What was your name? Bohoya? More light did not come easy. Jack had to dig into the boulder for each flicker. Every time he pulled out stone, the purple light flared. When it did, he would immediately spin to take in their surroundings. The purple light began to glow on his arms in lines. He rubbed at the pain, but the marks and the sensation didn't go away. It illuminated him and the new boy. I can see yous! Marlin's feet skidded down the inclined cave floor. Sand or rocks continued to shift and slide toward them from his footfalls, even after he paused. No hiding now, boy. You're going to be sorry. Jack reached and pushed the child against the wall, then stood in front. Marlin would kill him, maybe both of them. He pressed back, squishing the boy tighter. Jack didn't want to crush the boy in his attempt to hide him, but better to die than to allow what Marlin wanted. His hands groped. Fur? Warm hide? Moist breath left Jack's nostrils with a rumble. The musk of animal hide and sweat burned lightly in the back of his throat. His hands were not hands anymore, but claws. An eldritch growl rumbled from Jack's back and chest into the alcove. It rumbled until the walls themselves bellowed in reply. Jack had found his voice. Marlin screamed, Sasquatch! Until he died. If you enjoyed that story, you'll enjoy Hillary's Dance of the Crane series, which you can find on Amazon. I'm going to read Prison Librarian by Jeannie Kay. This is from her journal she kept a while back when she was a prison librarian. We had two escapes recently from other prisons. One guy was on a work crew putting up razor wire at another facility. He climbed right up the roll in the corner of the fence and walked away. He was caught when an off-duty officer saw him in a pizza parlor. I want to know where he got the money to buy pizza. Which reminds me, another inmate told me he used to work as a groundskeeper at a medium security prison. He wasn't watched closely because he's in for involuntary manslaughter. He said he would walk a couple blocks up the street and get an ice cream cone from Baskin Robbins. I said, where did you get the money? He said he saw his brother driving by and told him to give him ten bucks. Then he hid it under a rock where he was working. Now he says there's still five dollars and some change under that rock. A second escape was a guy who walked away from another minimum security prison, and an off-duty officer saw him reported him, and he was caught and sent to the maximum security facility. I was telling an officer I worked with about it since he'd been on vacation for 10 days and didn't know what all had gone on. He said, wow, talk about rotten luck. So I looked up on the Department of Correction webpage to see what it had to say about escapes. 
Then I went to another state site and looked at their escape list. These pages are on there for the public to see, and you should look at them. You wouldn't believe how creepy some of those people are. Wow, if all my inmates looked like that, I would find another job. The guys where I work look like any guy on the street. You would never believe that they're felons. But, as I've been told more than once, they worked hard to get here. Inquiring minds want to know what the most popular books are in my library. Love poems is the most popular subject. Other popular subjects are art books, especially anything with tattooing pictures, religious books such as Wicca, or books about the Masons, and dictionaries. I find that really interesting. But I digress, back to my walk up the hill. I got to the master control, and I was going to ask the cute young officer in there why he shaved his head. He told us he lost a bet. Funny, the inmates get in a lot of trouble for betting. So there was this short, crabby older guy at the window with his back to me. I said, You can't be done with counting already. They do counts several times a day and several times a night. He said, No, I have a secret message to deliver. What are you doing sneaking up on me? He is one of those crabby, but not so crabby guys, so he's pretty nice to me these days. Doing a write-up or disciplinary report helped my credibility with a lot of people at the prison. We librarians have a bad reputation for never doing write-ups, sleeping with the inmates, and so on. I said, I was just going to ask the dispatcher about a shaved head, and the crabby guy said, well, don't rub it in. We had this discussion the next day at roll call about it. He said that this other guy, who is also shave bald, hates the Vikings and hates hair. So he said they should talk about the Vikings to bug him and go to the barber shop and get a bunch of hair and put it in his car. The rest of the staff said, we're not going to touch that hair. You never know what might be in it. Then this nice looking older bald guy said, I don't get it. These young guys shave their heads and us old guys wish we had hair. I have said the same thing many times. Sometimes we have really funny meetings because we have some very funny staff. Roll call is a meeting they have every shift, mostly for the officers, to brief them on what is going on in the prison. They pass along memos that have come down from the warden like, do not use your computer for personal use, and so on. They tell if there are problems going on in ours or other prisons, including escapes, like I mentioned. The old numbers or older inmates, are actually respected by most of the younger inmates. We have jigsaw puzzles for the old guys in our library, and anyone else who wants to do them. That is where I dumped three 500-piece puzzles for them to do. And they did them in record time, in one day, pretty much. Now I pick up more puzzles at yard sales, Salvation Army, etc. Unfortunately, those are usually missing a piece. I toss them after the inmates put them together. Just got some more the other day, including 2,000-piece puzzle, which the men like the challenge of doing. I got a cool Monopoly one, but it's missing one outside piece. I'm coordinating with another librarian to buy one each of 3D puzzles, and then we can do an exchange. We're going to ask if any of the other librarians want to chip in, because we'll have to pay for them ourselves. We have no budgets this year. I just watched a movie about Angola prison in Louisiana. A food service guy at my prison was telling me how it is such a big place that some of the workers actually live on the farm, as it is called. Can you imagine? In the movie, it's said that they call the area the safest town in America. 
even though the baseball field is only a quarter mile from death row? Well, sure. They have 24-hour security. Do you know what IQ stands for? What an average IQ is, low and high? I had an inmate ask me, so I'm trying to find out. It seems to be a deep, dark secret. I did some research and found out that Marilyn Voss Savant has the highest IQ in the world. I also found a test study that claimed that corporal punishment by mothers seems to help ensure that their kids end up in prison. I don't think so. I would say abuse, yes, but otherwise, probably the opposite is true. However, I am curious about these things, so I keep on researching. All right, sounds like it's time for us to go. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckyliles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.